Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello from me, Richard Heller, in South London, where it's cold and damp. It's a typical no bloody November day. Apologies from Peter, who is um, between destinations in the Middle East somewhere and cannot join us even remotely. Very glad that our distinguished friend and colleague, Roger Alton, is uh, relieving him from the pavilion end. Thanks very much indeed. I'm in uh, South East London, uh, where it's grey, and I'm looking forward to the rugby a bit later on, though. And uh, very glad today, Roger, to welcome uh, historian Richard Parry onto the podcast. Richard has um, written a very um, insightful and authoritative book with our friend and past podcast guest, Andre Ordendahl, on the history of South African cricket, uh, specifically on the history of England's cricket tours to South Africa for 80 years, uh, which were concluded by the um, Dolavera affair. And I think you'll agree, Roger, it's a multi-layered book. It's not only a book, a fascinating book about cricket, but it's a mm. fascinating book about the social and economic background yeah. of um, of cricket. What I found absolutely fascinating was one, I mean, it's so rich, why it hasn't been done before, extraordinary, or maybe it has, and I've missed it, but an absolutely brilliant subject. And as you say, it's it's not just cricket, but it's sort of um, matters of, uh, you know, minority government, uh, racial segregation, and the use of migrant labour, all of which are shit hot topics right now. And I just wondered, Richard, if you could sort of talk about talk about the book and where, where, where it came from and all that. I think it's brilliant. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Good, good, good morning, everybody. Uh, the book itself really came out of a couple of disparate strains which, which were brought together around the whole notion of the relationship between cricket and politics, and particularly the relationship between cricket and politics in, in Southern Africa. Of course, this is an old story with regard to Dolabira and so on. Um, but uh, what, what I was looking to do and what uh, Andre and I initially talked about was how we would track this back into the origins of cricket in South Africa and the origins of the, the strange, bizarre and cruel political system that South Africa developed. Um, so Andre had done quite a lot of work, as we, as we all know, both on uh, African political uh, resistance in the early in the early stages following the frontier wars and so on and the origins of the ANC. He'd all, he was also working as a cricket historian on a on a history of South African cricket as such, specifically looking at uh, the cricket that South Africa didn't talk about, black cricket, in other words, uh, which was as as significant, if not more so, uh, in some in some circumstances than the white establishment cricket. I'd been looking at the origins of segregation when I first started my academic research a very long time ago now. Uh, I'd looked at the origins of segregation. I was, uh, I'd, I'd, I was opposed, resisted the apartheid, uh, came over to the UK as, as a political refugee in the 1970s uh, and, and did, did quite a bit of work on the origins, roads and the origins of segregation. Uh, and discovered that William Milton, uh, who was Rhodes's private secretary and who drew up the first specifically racist legislation with regard to uh, voters in the Cape Colony itself, uh, as well as the, the land structure and the land system, uh, also happened to be captain of the South African cricket team. And this for me was a, a bit of a revelation. And when I started looking into this, and I looked into it over a number of years in one way or another, I discovered a, a number of 
astonishing truths about South Africa and South African cricket and the relationship between how, just how close cricket was in the corridors of power. Uh, perhaps not so surprisingly uh, in South Africa, but also, of course, the relationship between the MCC and, and England cricket, if you like, and South Africa, and particularly the relationship between the mining industry and what went on at Lords and the, uh, the powers that be and how, how essentially South African cricket was, was used um, by political forces and indeed by, by, uh, by the mining industry uh, to rationalize and develop and was part of the whole uh, development of mine labor, rationalization of, of the cheap labor system which the mines depended on. So what I discovered really was that cricket, cricket was fundamental in the way it, it connected into the wider social, socioeconomic context. And of course, the, the flip side of that was that the socioeconomic context determined what was going on on, on the cricket field, who played how they played, when they played, and so on, was all determined by the socioeconomic system in an extraordinary way, and in a way we, we kind of forget about today. Um, but at the time, in the 60s, when we were talking about Dolivira, everybody was aware of, of what apartheid actually meant uh, and, and what it meant with regard to your ability to travel to a cricket ground, to play on a ground, to even watch a game on a ground, uh, was, was determined fundamentally by your race. Uh, and that's, that's really was the essence of this relationship between cricket and politics and the, the social structure. So it came out of a, a number of different relationships within that. And I wanted to write a book which demonstrated exactly how that, first of all, how that happened and how, how segregation became apartheid, became the, the, the cruel and racist system that it was, and also how cricket linked into that. And that was essentially the origins of this. It's an extraordinary story. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the cricket, because it's been going back a long time, you know, right from, you know, the late 19th century. Um, and why, how it happened, obviously, is a very important part of the book, but the, the cricket authorities didn't seem to give a damn until relatively recently, and in fact, endorsed it. Yes, I, I'd, I'd go even further than that, actually, Roger. I'd say that... Uh... I'd say that cricket was essentially a, a part of a mechanism for, build, for bringing together the, the notion of empire, the notion of, of mines and the, 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 the economic basis of which were, were for a long time the gold mines and mining capital in, in, in South Africa. And, uh, and, and the, the way in which cricket itself actually did more than just, more than just uh, formalize a situation where the authorities turned a blind eye to the fact that there was there was uh, where the cricket the cricketers turned a blind eye to the fact that cricket was being played. It was much more fundamental than that. Cricket was there to demonstrate, if you like, that first of all the connection between South Africa and the UK, and to, to bring a really strong political and ideological connection between the two. And and secondly, cricket was a, a mechanism for bizarrely and in retrospect for normalising the society. You know, they played cricket with South Africa. Uh, and partly be, to, to demonstrate the normality of that relationship and South, and, and South, Africa's, South Africa's political dynamic throughout this period was to see itself and develop itself as part of this global community, uh, despite its bizarre, cruel and uh, uh, racial practices. Uh, and, and by the, of course, this, this fell apart and it fell apart around at the, which began, as a process which began with uh, in the 1960s, late 50s, early 60s, came to a bit of a head with Dolivira, and then things began to change 
fundamentally as a result of that until 1990, when we actually got uh, when we actually got independence and a, and a free South Africa. Um, but it's uh, the, the point is that, that cricket is, is is a glue that holds all this together. It holds the empire together in a sense, and it certainly holds the relationship between South Africa, which is this this maverick bit of empire into that broader relationship. And it does so because of the individuals involved. Lord Harris, for example, who goes through a, a career beginning as England captain, uh, becomes a, a, Tory, uh, a Tory minister, governor of, of Bombay in 1890, uh, then president of the MCC, which is a significant position, but only a one-year position, and more importantly, treasurer of the MCC, which is the, where the power really lies, and he's treasurer from the late 1890s right through to, to the 1930s. He con Lord Harris controls lords and controls cricket, but he also controls uh, consolidated gold fields in South Africa. And if you read biographies of Lord Harris, you start find very few references to the fact that he was chairman of consolidated gold fields, which was Rhodes's old conglomerated company, which basically controlled most of the gold mines, uh, along with the corner house group in South Africa. So, so Harris, Harris bestrode both of these yeah. worlds, the world of mining capital and the world of cricket. And, and that fundamental linkage is really important. And, and at the same time, Abe Bailey, who controlled South African cricket, was also the CEO of Consolidated Goldfield. So the connections <laughs> were direct. You really couldn't make it up. So South African cricket, and in fact, England's, really, England's entire cricket relationship with um, South Africa for 80 years was a wholly owned subsidiary of Consolidated Goldfields. So absolutely. So to say that England was complicit is to not nearly go far enough. England was not only complicit in this, England was a driving force in this. At the same time, what was the actual cricket like, Richard? Because it seemed it was quite good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, that's that, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the the, the leaving aside that, that political context, although, of course, it underlies everything because you've got sure. a white South African cricket team playing, but leaving that aside for the moment, the cricket was the the cricket was amazing. I mean, so it fell into three sort of three areas. First of all, the pre nineteen hundred cricket, where they, which was essentially exhibitions, although much more complicated than that. And there was some some degree of competitiveness, but essentially exhibition matches, Lord Hawke's tours, uh, Walter Reed's tour, where he ended up in jail. Uh, and, uh, and and of course, the beginning, which was Aubrey Smith, and who ended up as a Hollywood actor, and we see on his tour exactly why he ended up as a, as a Hollywood actor. The second period is after the Anglo-Boer War uh, to 1914, and, that's, and, and though we have there uh, some really amazing series. First of all, when Warner, Plum Warner's team is, is beaten 4-1 uh, by the team which consisting mainly of googly bowlers. Uh, and then the uh, and then the backlash which comes from Johnny Douglas uh, and Johnny Douglas's team in in 1913 14 and the two the seven tests are, are won by each side during that across that period so it's a dead dead even bet um, and then then the main sequence of, of of series the eight or nine series I think it was eight series um, between 1922 and 1964. Uh, those series, in every series, they go down to the last test. And in all of those series, not only do they go to the last test, but we don't know who's won the series until the last day. And that's, so in each of those series yeah. are incredibly competitive. If you, if you compare that to the Ashes, for example, yeah. which everybody makes such a fuss about, uh, 
The Ashes series uh, in seven out of 10 series in the same period, they were dead rubbers. In other words, after the third or the fourth test, everybody, the series had already been decided and the last mm -hmm. test was essentially a, an exhibition mm -hmm. match. Mm -hmm. So that suggests that the, for me anyway, that the cricket has been massively, well, well, simply uh, there's been far too little emphasis put on in terms of competitive cricket of what was really going on in, in the South African context here. Yeah, and the cricket itself needs a lot more work that has been given up to now. Yeah. Were there big crowds, Richard? They were, uh, they were, uh, and, and uh, from right from the start, in fact, uh, and not only were there big crowds, but there were big crowds in the streets outside looking in shop windows uh, where, where shopkeepers would display the latest scores up every, every five or ten minutes. Um, there was massive interest in this. These were South Africa's only real sporting events, apart from rugby, which, uh, and there were rugby tours through this, through this period as well, but these were the only real sort of national sporting events that South Africa was actively engaged in. And, and South Africa also, remember, didn't have television and didn't have television until, no. I think, 1978. Um, so so it, <coughs> these things, nobody could actually watch any of this stuff. Yeah. They were afraid of television, weren't they? They were exactly afraid of television. And, and, uh, yeah. and in the end, they had a great deal of trouble when they did bring it in because the, the first thing they had to put on was ballots. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I had a bit of trouble with Dallas because it also the morality of Dallas wasn't necessarily the way the South African regime liked to portray itself. So there was all sorts of uh, interest. But, but the point about the point was that there was people were at the ground because there were very few ways, apart from uh, radio commentary, very few ways of, of getting involved. And there were crowds, you know, there were crowds of 35, 40,000 at, at, at test matches, which is a proportion of the population is huge. But of course, they were almost always or white, uh, the, the degree to which black spectators were al allowed was pretty limited. Uh, Gandhi himself, in fact, Mahatma Gandhi, fought a long campaign in Johannesburg to allow Indian or black spectators to, to the wanderers. And uh, in fact, never succeeded, he left for India before his campaign succeeded. Uh, and they were finally allowed in, but when they were allowed in, they were put in a separate cage with wire all around, uh, apparently for their protection. It is unbelievable, it is isn't unbelievable. it? Did they always cheer the, the visiting side? Yes, they, they, they did. And from the first tour. There's a lot of testimony of that. Yeah. Yes. From the first tour. It's it's very it's very interesting to see that. And and that gives you a pretty clear idea where things are, which is why the, the astonishing apparent ignorance of people, you know, but all the way through the, the, the tours. And not only that, but also uh, people like uh, like Mike Gatting finally. Uh, in, in his rebel tour, the, the ignorance which suggested that somehow uh, cricket was there to change the uh, change the engagement of what was going on when when they could see right from the start just how how blacks saw them and and saw the saw the role of of, of cricket. Um, it, it's interesting that the professionals. Uh, and there's a there's a difference between professionals and amateurs in this context. The amateurs, of course, were 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 quite a, only engaged with with white South Africans and only engaged with the the, the upper echelons of the white establishment, as one might expect. Um, but the uh, but the professionals, particularly in the early years and the first uh, the first five or six years, had close connections with the black community with the so-called Malay community in Cape Town, for example, the first thing that they did when they got off the boat in 1891, the professionals uh, 
went off, were invited to a, a, a Malay wedding and went and attended a Malay wedding with Malay cricket professionals at the, at the wedding. So uh, sadly, by, the, by 1900, that, that kind of connection had entirely disappeared and, and, and wasn't to return. So you've got a lot of very distinguished English cricketers playing at this period. Did nobody think, blimey, there's not a black face to be seen in the audience? What is going on here? Did nobody, not, or was it just that's the way it was? You know, that's what I find so difficult. Yeah, I think the, I, th I think there was a, there was some, uh, th there is some sort of very, very faint echo of some concerns here. Uh, the only specific reference to this I found is in a speech by, by Aubrey, Aubrey Smith uh, in Port Elizabeth on the first tour, this, just after the third game of, the, of, of you know, any of these tours, um, which was in 1888. Uh, and Aubrey Smith talked about cricket and the power of cricket of bringing people together and so on. And there was lots of talk about the power of cricket throughout this period, bringing the races together. But what was meant was the, the, the white races, the English and the Afrikaners. <laughs> so the word race was used in that kind of context. So, but, but Aubrey Smith went further and he talked about, he talked about how they'd seen lots of black cricketers playing both in an organized way and playing on the streets with, with paraffin tins as wickets and, and, and uh, you know, trees as, as uh, tree branches as bats and so on, and and talked about the the significance of cricket of bringing everybody together, and it wasn't just so it wasn't just a reference to to uh, to white cricketers, but to black cricketers as well. Now, of course, that that fell on stony ground, and no one commented on that. Nobody said anything about that, but it's in his speech, and he's the last one to say, or the first and the last one at least till the. Uh, until the 1940s to say anything about the system. So we don't know what people really thought about it, but we can intuit from this that, that no one had any interest whatsoever in pursuing in an active way uh, the system that they were playing cricket within. For one thing, the professionals, the professionals were, were had come out of a, a, an ideology of essentially of servitude in the UK. I mean, the profession, the way professionals were treated in the uh, in the county game, didn't leave, give them much opportunity to challenge the establishment of the powers that were, that would be mm. in, in England. So there's no reason why they would seek to challenge it in South Africa. And the amateurs, of course, were were fundamentally part of the the, the system which was running all of this. So also see, saw no reason to challenge it. So it's. So while on a human level you would think they must think this is completely crazy, on a uh, uh, on a on a political level, uh, it's yeah. extremely. You can understand why they might not. Yeah, completely. Walter Reed's tour, though Walter Reed in particular, picked, took up the cause of Crom Hendricks. Now you've written about him uh, separately, haven't you, Richard? Um, yeah. Tell us about Crom. Crom Hendricks was classified as Malay, wasn't he? Though yes. I think that was. That, that wasn't accurate, but uh, and I think Crom Hendricks himself resented that. But it simply meant that he wasn't he wasn't white. He wasn't eligible to play for white South Africa. Anyway, to, tell us about uh, Crom Hendricks, who had his one whose one um, appearance in cricket archive is through is in a pickup match, so to say, with Walter Reed's team. Yes, um, yes, Crom Hendricks was the. Uh, uh, this is kind of part of an earlier book. Was was the the central the central figure in the eighteen nineties in South African cricket, 
but he was he, he was in this incredibly bizarre position of not being uh, not being allowed to play uh, in any kind of establishment cricket. And it he was considered to be uh, the best fast bowler in the world in the in the eighteen nineties by the English professionals who played against him. Tom Hayward, for example, who we we all know about, uh, in in eighteen ninety six on the eighteen ninety six tour faced him. Um, but uh, at, at, when, at the end of the tour, he was Tom was asked, "Who's who's the best bowler you faced on the, on the tour?" And Tom Hayward had played, uh, I think, three Test matches against South Africa's best bowlers, not including Hendricks, of course. Uh, and he said at the end of this, he said, "The best fast bowler I, play, I played in South Africa was the uh, I, I only played I only faced once, and I faced him in the nets, and his name was Crom Hendricks." And, uh, and also Chatterton, uh, Bill Chatterton, who, the Derbyshire professional, said, he was, he said he'd faced all of the great bowlers. And as far as he was concerned, Hendricks was better than Spofford. So Hendricks was a, a central player. Um, what happened to him was he played uh, colored, so-called colored cricket, in other words, non-white cricket. And I hate the expression, but for the sake of, uh, for the ease of, of, of using some kind of differentiation, in terms of non-white cricket, um, the, uh, the 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 teams non-white cricket was extremely strong, probably as strong as establishment cricket at the, the white cricket, in other words, at the time in Cape Town. Uh, on the W on on, on Walter Reed's tour in 1891-2, uh, they finished the the Test match early, uh, and it was agreed to play a game against the, the South African Malay team. So for the first time. Uh, in fact, the only time until uh, until until South Africa became a democracy, uh, you get a game which is a, a black team against a white team in in South Africa. The team is not made; it's not it's not Reed's team as such because the, the amateurs, including Reed, have nothing to do with it, uh, and Reed uh, uh, um, didn't as such support himself support this, but it was looked on as a benefit game for the professionals. So the professionals, who, as I mentioned at the beginning of this tour, already had this relationship with Malay cricket, had gone to this Malay wedding, and through Frank Hearn, who was the, the key professional figure in, in South Africa who'd, who'd, come over on, uh, who'd come over on the first tour and stayed, Frank Hearn had managed to arrange this game. They'd played it at Newlands, and they played it at Newlands to make sure that the gates uh, that the gates were kept up over the next two days, that people came to watch the game, otherwise they were going to lose a lot of money. So, uh, so Milton, who was in charge of what, William Milton, who was in charge of what went on at Newlands, uh, allowed this to happen to make some money for the, they, the, the, Malay, the Malay team basically saved it. Hendricks performed extremely well in this. He didn't take a lot of wickets, but he performed extremely well. Uh, and, then, and then in 1894 was selected for, to play for South Africa to tour England, South Africa's first tour to England. Rhodes and, and Milton, his, his secretary, uh, who was chairman of selectors, vetoed the selection. Hendricks did not go to, to England. Uh, Hendricks then uh, was, was denied the possibility of representing the province, uh, Western province as it was. He was denied the possibility of playing in club cricket for, in this, among the establishment clubs. So uh, despite playing as a professional net bowler, but not being allowed to actually get onto the pitch, uh, he continued to play, and he played on um, through right through into his sixties in the in the middle of the First World War. And in the middle of the First World War, he ended up captaining a South African co coloured eleven, uh, playing in a charity match against whites, uh, and and uh, 
as I said, for war charity. So he was he was a huge figure. Uh, the debate was always about why isn't Hendrix playing, of course, uh, and constantly the issue was constantly uh, constantly in front of the South African public in the papers. But by the uh, by, by after 1914, after the war, the whole issue of of black cricket disappears. Hendrix disappears. In fact, people start writing about him, but nobody has any idea who he is. And it took us until we. John T. Winch and I, who wrote this this book on Hendricks, until we wrote the book to actually establish specifically who who Crom Hendricks was. Why does it disappear, Richard? Just because people can't be asked? I mean, <laughs> you know, is it that it? Is it just there's such a sort of pressure of white, you know, orthodox cricket? I think it's more than that. I think again, it's a it's a it's a fairly calculated approach. I mean, uh-huh. white cricket is cricket. And, and basically, black cricket as a whole, not just Hendricks, but all black cricket is written out of the record. You know, there's always this assumption that, oh, blacks don't play cricket, you know, which is a, a bizarre, uh, uh, you know, falsehood in, in the light of what goes on every day in, in all of the big cities, wherever you went, there would be, there would be black players playing cricket and organized matches. Uh, it was just that, that whites chose to ignore it and chose to ignore the historical record because it was too... You know, if you if you recognised it, then you had to say, well, maybe they should be playing with us. Yeah, yeah, it's a shocker. Presumably for the MCC, a South African tour was a real plum, you know, because you've got lovely weather, lovely country, lots of giraffes, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> really, really, it's a real, lots of people wanted to come on an SA tour, I guess. Is that is that right? What was it like? For an MCC tourist in those early years, you know? Yeah, well, well, <laughs> it's uh, it didn't start off quite like that. Uh, in in the first the first couple of tours, life was pretty pretty tough. They were very arduous tours. South Africa, as as I'm sure you'll you'll know, is a is a pretty big place, uh, and uh, in terms of geography, it's extremely challenging. Uh, lots of mountains, lots of deserts, uh, lots of in, inhospitable terrain. Uh, and most of it in, in the first tour, for example, they traveled 15,000 miles of tourists, uh, of, of which a couple of thousand were by rail and, and 900 were by Cape Cart. So unsprung carts <laughs> working their way through mountain passes with un, you know, no, no such thing as tarred roads or anything like yes. that. Um, so it was quite, a, quite well, both, both, both uncomfortable and dangerous. Uh, um, uh, Bobby Abel, for example, was famously got to the point of one where he where he refused to go on and said, "If I'm going to die, just shoot me here. I'm not going to take the risk of falling over the edge. I'd rather just get it done with now." So uh, you know, the, the tours themselves were difficult. But after once once, of course, the we got into a situation where the trains uh, were able to link up the the, the whole of the subcontinent, uh, and we're talking now really into the sort of 1900s. Um, and indeed, they became more comfortable, and so on. Then, by, by the 1930s and 40s, it's an abs- as as Colin Cardry called it. It's a, it's a safari by Rolls Royce. Uh, they had a. It was a. It was a great tour. It was a great. It was always a great tour. Incredibly hospitable. South yeah. Africans like a drink, and they like a bright place, and they like a. You know, they like they like a good time. The white South African establishment didn't yeah. stint on any of this, and they were, and they didn't get all the hassle that they got in Australia. They didn't get all the barracking and the, the kind of the general feeling of pressure and tension because nobody you know the the nobody back in the uk really cared that much about what was going on in, in south africa it was just seen as one of those places where they played whereas everybody cared much more about what was going on in australia yeah fascinating absolutely fascinating
I just want to go back to Crom Hendricks for a second and why black and colored players were just written out of the record. Yeah. Um, Richard, it seems to me that uh, you, your book presents, you know, a kind of social and economic argument behind that as well. It's not just a cricketing phenomenon, but cricket in South Africa is a mark of civilization. Therefore, it's kind of syllogism. Cricket means civilization. Um, if blacks and coloured people play it, it means that blacks and coloured people must be civilised. If blacks and coloured people are civilised and admitted to be civilised, they start asking for land, equality of la in land, in housing, in, um, in voting rights, in political power, and and so on. So there's a sort of, isn't there, there's a social, economic, ideological motive for just writing, keeping cricket out of the hands of of black and coloured people, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Uh, it's 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 ideological and it's economic. I think the the, the certainly the ideology in the eighteen in the nineteenth century and from sort of the eighteen fifties onwards, based around things like mission schools and so on, was was that um, that what you what you would do is you would take the sons of uh, of chiefs and whatever to uh, to to be educated and to to help you know join in this divide and rule exercise which is what the empire really was was set to, to create these local rulers who would do your work for you as they did in india and indeed elsewhere the idea was to do that in south africa too um and that was in the that was before the discovery of gold and so you've got a situation where, where cricketers like they where players like or he was a cricketer, a major cricketer like Nathan Nimshlala, who was uh, from the Eastern Cape, was uh, was at Zonnebloom College, which was a college for sort of African chiefs and so on, which was also amazingly attended by Basil Dolivera a um, uh, uh, hundred or so years later. But Nathan Nimshlala was 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 playing cricket at this college, and at the same time he could see Robben Island over the bay where his father. Who was uh, who'd been a, a chief who'd been uh, resisting co the colonial regime uh, was imprisoned. So that that was that sort of dynamic started this this whole process. But you had people like Umshlala and and indeed the entire African political leadership were involved in cricket, because cricket was as as they sought at that time right, right up to Union really right up to 1910. Africans, Africans believed, and they, even the ANC believed, that Britain would help the South Africans to do the right thing, or they would make South Africans do the right thing. They would create a society based on, as you described it, civilized kind of values, whatever those might be. And, uh, and, and therefore, in order, that, in order to be part of that, they played cricket, they, they were religious, of course, uh, and and did all the all the things that one needed to be to be part of uh, Victoria's empire. Now, of course, in 1910, uh, they were uh, not for the first time, but uh, not indeed for the last. But they were sold absolutely down the river by by Britain, who essentially agreed on the Union of South Africa based on Afrikaner uh, and English self government. Uh, which had no uh, which had no role for uh, for Africans or black black South Africans in it. Indeed, from that point onwards, black South Africans are no longer really South African. Uh, their rights are always circumscribed specifically in both politically and economically. And of course, then you get this whole pressure for cheap mine labor. So you get a recruiting organization comes together called the the Native Recruiting Corporation, uh, run by the mines. 
The person in charge of that is somebody is, is somebody called Harry Taborah. Again, uh, you may have heard of Harry Taborah. Harry Taborah is not only head of the Native Recruiting Corporation for th through to the 1930s and, and governs the recruitment of, uh, and indeed of millions of black laborers on the mines and so a, a, a large percentage of, or significant percentage of whom die on the mines. Uh, but he also happens to be captain of South African cricket in 1902 against the Australians. <laughs> so once again, the connection between cricket and, uh, and mine labor is, 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 uh, is really, is, is quite astonishing. It's an extraordinary story. Some of those early tests, um, early series, the 13, 14 series, um, yeah. Sid Barnes was yes. extremely big. What happened there? Yes, well, Sidney Barnes, of course, was Sidney uh, Barnes had played against England in the so-called the Triangular Series, 19, uh, 1911-12, um, in, in miserable wet conditions in, in South Africa, got absolutely blown away by, by Barnes and by, by England. It's Barnes then came over with, uh, with Johnny Douglas's team uh, in uh, in 1913, but Bonds was a Bonds Bonds was his own one man team. He didn't engage. He came over separately with his wife and and family uh, on a separate ship. He he barely travelled with the team at all. Uh, the, if he did travel with the team, he travelled with a South African team rather than with the with the English <laughs> team. Um, he only really engaged with the English team when he was on the field. Uh, but when he was on the field, he was a one-man team, and he, he took 49 wickets in four test matches, an average of 10.9. Uh, quite utterly startling figures, and 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 unlikely ever to be equal. Um, he he won uh, he won all of the games in which he he bowled. Uh, he didn't play in the last test, and he didn't play in the last test on the what seemed like pretty reasonable grounds to me because he, he uh, hadn't been allowed to take collections. The manager yes. hadn't allowed him to take collections when, he, when he'd taken seven or eight wickets, which he did several times in the course of that series. But the main, the main thing about that series actually was not so much just Barnes, it was Barnes against Taylor. And what you had was what, what I can only describe as a kind of cricketing Valhalla. You had the two, you had these two personalities and these two players with Technic with the, their technical skills, playing against each other at, a, at the absolute height of their powers. Um, in the same series where, where Barnes took his 49 wickets at 10, Taylor averaged 50. Uh, and that gives you some idea of just how, just how good Taylor was and how, and, and, and how much he carried the team. He, he was 24 years old, he was also captain of the team, so he had that responsibility as well. Um, he is, and that that the, the sheer uh, the, the sheer sort of gladiatorial combat between these two players over the course of that series was utterly remarkable. More than I can think of in any other sort of what would now be called a matchup of of, of a test series before or since. I can't think of any test series which two players have been so completely uh, uh, you know out of out yeah. of the the league of any of anybody else. What happened to Taylor? What happened to him? Well, Taylor continued to play right through until the nineteen, the late nineteen twenties. Uh, scored a lot of runs for South Africa. Was South Africa's greatest batsman, um, probably overtaken eventually by Dudley North, uh, and then of course by by others subsequently. Um, but Taylor had Taylor had a hugely successful Test career. Of course, after that particular series, he, there was a war. 
uh, and you know then cricket only returned sort of eight years later so he lost a large chunk of his his best playing years um, but his record was still outstanding and and uh, um, and he but but that duel between Barnes and Taylor was 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 just wonderful I mean to give you some idea of, of what it was like uh, Taylor, the only team that beat Johnny Douglas's side in that in that series were, were Natal. Natal also captained by Taylor and also with Dave Norse, uh, old, old Dave, the grand old man of South African cricket, as he was generally referred to. Um, Dave Norse was a left-hander. He was the guy who'd won the first test for South Africa in 19, uh, 1906. Uh, and he, um, he was batting in the Natal game with Taylor. Uh, they were chasing about 160, uh, and they were they were they were grinding it out. They were they were grinding it out, and, and Taylor was stealing a single at the end of at the end of every over, farming the bowling, farming the bowling. And there's a celebrated story about how Barnes throws the ball down and says, "It's Taylor, 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 all the time." I can't do this. Storms off the field. What happens then is is that he storms off for a whiskey and soda and a rub down, and. Uh, <laughs> And 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 they continue to and Norse and, and Taylor continue to put on some runs, uh, and then suddenly Norse goes crazy and starts trying to hit the ball out of the park. Hits the first one for six, hits the next one into the hands of of deep long on, uh, and he's gone. And Taylor goes Taylor goes up to Norse. He said, "What are you doing? What was we were we were winning this game? What have you just done?" And he said, "He said I was looking up at the balcony. I could see him. He said the bastard's coming back." <laughs> 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 there's a thing for sort of most or normal cricket followers the one great thing we think of in south african well until the modern era of course is the the timeless test in durban mm. uh broken up by the war could you could you just say something about that because i've always been fascinated by it that you would actually have a timeless test and all the large number of people who take the view that a lot of cricket is quite timeless <laughs> it goes on forever anyway. yeah. yes indeed it's not the sort of game you would uh, you would want to take your girlfriend to, to introduce yeah. her to right? Right. but but anyway uh, yeah i mean timeless tests were actually a, a pretty standard uh, a pretty standard model certainly in australia most tests the last test of the series was generally set to be timeless if there was a result to be achieved in other words if the series hadn't been settled but as i had suggested earlier on of course this hardly ever happened in australia so they didn't play any timeless tests but it did happen in south africa in 1938-39 which was uh, wally hammond's tour wally uh, and, and they came into the last test uh, it was uh, it was it was one nil at the time to to England, so South Africa could have got a drawn series. Uh, so they so started off the Test match, and basically they because it was timeless, everything happened fairly slowly. Um, it's an extremely boring first eight or nine days, so I won't go into the details of those. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> except to say that 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 uh, Pete van Bale uh, made one hundred and twenty five and ninety seven, and got out trying to hit the ball over the pavilion, and and to this to as for his for his entire life, he was absolutely devastated by the fact that he hadn't got two hundreds. Um, and and but just to to bring it into the last innings, the last innings begins with England needing uh, six hundred and ninety six to win. Now, a bit of a tough target, you would think, um, but nonetheless. On the pitch, the way it is, and and the the state of conditions, and this by by this time, I think we're on the eighth day by this time, uh, and and by this time, there's, there's no admission for spectators to come in in the ground. They've given up on all of that. Um, there's hardly anybody there anyway. 
they just they're just playing cricket. They're in this sort of they're in this cocoon of cricket. Uh, it's a timeless test uh, in, in in the sense that it, it will go on until there's a result. But of course, it's a sort of Samuel Beckettian timeless yeah. test because it doesn't be, it becomes timeless in a in a kind of real sense after that. But but the um, so they've got they've got 696 to get. Uh, Mitchell, who bowls the slowest leg breaks in in first class cricket, uh, comes in, gets a wicket. And in comes Bill Edrich. And Bill Edrich has, up to this point, has scored 24, 25 runs in the entire series of the first four tests, plus the first innings of this one. He's having an absolute nightmare of a series. It's, it's, uh, and, and thinks his England career is basically over. He comes out to bat. Uh, initially, he's, he's tried to do everything he can to, to, get his, to get his form back, not drinking, not smoking, whatever. Anyway, he has a party the night before with Tapio and Smith, Maybe he doesn't get to bed. Comes out to bat the next day. Uh, Reg Perks, who's got this, uh, who's, who's playing in his first test in fast bowler, uh, slips him this little elephant as he as he gets up out of his seat to come out to bat. So put that in your pocket. It'll see you right. So he puts this elephant in his pocket, walks out to bat. Uh, Mitchell is can't wait for him to get there. Mitchell sees, and like the whole South African team, see him as a walking wicket. They're just desperate for him to get in. Anyway, he hits the the first. He hits a four a straight through and four after a couple of balls, and he's suddenly he's on his way. Makes two hundred and nineteen uh, eventually, uh, and that side back and back and back until the last day. And they're uh, they're they've got they've got over six hundred. They're, they're chasing. Um, there's one hundred and twenty eight to get on the last day. Uh, they figure they're going to get there easily. They've got they've got uh, three or four, sorry, four or five wickets in hand, uh, and then uh, when Hammond is batting with with Painter, and and then uh, the rain comes. They warned about it. They try and speed up the pace, but they can't get there in time. The rain comes down. They have to leave that night to catch a ship back to the UK, because if the war, the impending war means that shipping is tightly controlled now, they have to be on that ship, or or they don't get they don't get back. So. Um, so the game ends as a timeless test. It really is a timeless yeah. test. It's a drawn test. It's yeah. timeless in 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 a fundamental sense. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, but it's a real sort of Samuel Beckett proposition. I wonder what happened to Bill Edrich's lucky elephant. Yeah. Oh, I think he kept it. Uh, I don't know. I have <laughs> have no idea. But it'd be worth finding. It's it plays its role in cricket history. Quite a lot of <laughs> Wally Hammond had a very we mentioned had a very long relationship with South Africa, didn't he? He did. He did. I mean, the the interesting thing. I mean, Wally Hammond first played in in uh, in the nineteen twenty seven twenty eight tour, uh, Stanifer's tour, uh, and uh, it, the year before that, he played at Greenpoint as a as a club professional, Greenpoint in South Africa, in Cape Town, um, and so as a, so he knew South African conditions quite well. This was after his strange illness and 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 all that went on in in that he played not very successfully for greenpoint came back scored a stack of runs uh, in, in england uh, and then and then was picked for this for this tour so he played then he played on each of the subsequent uh, subsequent tours uh, up to the uh, up, up to the 1938-9 tour where he captured the side uh, and then he came back to watch uh, and indeed commentate on and so on tours from then onwards and eventually immigrated to South Africa in the in the 50s. Uh, he became a cricket coach at the Tal University, uh, fell on hard times one way or another, uh, and then, but ended up coaching Barry Richards. 
Uh, and while he toured America in a tour just before the war, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd met Aubrey Smith. Indeed, he played against Aubrey Smith's and Aubrey Smith's Hollywood team. So Hammond links, uh, on the one hand, Aubrey Smith, played with Aubrey Smith, and he coached Barry Richards. So oh, that's amazing. the span of the whole span of this book and the whole span of South African cricket, in a sense, uh, up amazing. to certainly as it was in, in, in that environment. So the, the, the white plus establishment cricket. But his, his second wife was, was a former Miss South Africa, wasn't she? She was, she was. Yes, she was a beauty queen, yes. And, and yes. of course, he... He had all sorts of opportunities for other, for possible second, third, fourth wives, and so on in in South Africa. He was seen as as quite a, he was seen as quite a catch, and he had a very complicated, he had a very complicated situation with her, uh, because while he was uh, while he was in, he he was starting his relationship with her, his his wife flew in or came in came to South Africa, uh, to 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 find out what what on earth he was doing because things were getting pretty pretty rocky. Uh, and uh, and and he, he not only was he captaining the team, but he was trying to keep these two women apart and and, and figure out how, how he might manage that. So he always had a tricky time. Well, it's amazing he ever scored a run, really. <laughs> there was a lot of Wally had a very sort of sympathetic by present day standards. He was lucky in the relationships that he had with the media, wasn't he? Because there was a lot of um, kind of you know. The, the, People, the media kept quiet about all of his exploits and and all and indeed his mystery illness that you'd mentioned that he acquired in the in the West Indies that kept him out of the English game for for a year, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the media the media were far more uh, uh, you know had a, had a, had a completely different relationship with cricket and with players, uh, and they they were they were there to 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 report the game. Uh, and of course, to to provide positive messages about what the team were doing, they didn't see their role as to uh, investigate and dig down into to what was really going on on the tours. And it was unfortunate they didn't, because there was so much that went on in South Africa, which would have been really interesting to hear about. And occasionally, you get hints of this and that, but but on the whole, there's not too much documented, unless it's by people who actually tell you about themselves and what they did. Um, for example, um, uh, the the uh, I've forgotten. I've forgotten the, the player's name now. But, but anyway, the the uh, he who was there in the 19, uh, 1913-14 tour, uh, who uh, who was where there was a there was a lockdown essentially because South Africa was undergoing a, uh, this massive general strike, or Johannesburg was undergoing this massive general strike, and there was a lockdown essentially, and there was a militia in the streets and whatever, and uh, and this, the cricketers signed up to be part of the militia, and the reason they did that. Uh, one of the reasons they did that is was so they could go out after dark, so they weren't cut, they weren't they weren't blocked by the curfew. Uh, and uh, and and uh, Tennyson, his name was sorry, how could I forget that? Uh, so it was Lord Tennyson. Lionel Tennyson, yeah. No, indeed, yes. Yeah. Uh, Tennyson had gone out to dinner with uh, with with a female friend of his who happened to whose husband was of course serving in the militia. And, uh, and and he returned unexpectedly. So Tennyson had to 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 escape out of the, the bedroom window, going down the, the the vines and so on. Cut himself up. He was in a complete mess. Um, and so when he was fielding the next day, other wanderers playing for playing for England, uh, he was covered in covered in scars and blood and whatever through this this hasty escape. Uh, the the, <laughs> the husband never actually caught him, but. Yeah. <laughs> That's very similar to the experience of Bandasa Nazar's father, uh, Nazar Muhammad, um, early Pakistan player. He had to jump off a balcony to escape 
right. an irate husband, and that was the end of it. Actually, that was the end of his test playing career. He, I think yeah. he broke his arm. Yeah. I hope that's never happened to you, Richard. Um, <laughs> other, other Richard, um, can I just ask you, bring coming up into the modern era uh, and mm. the beginning, the breaking down of apartheid. I know it's slightly outside the term of your book, but so from the maybe the 47 48 tour after the Afrikaners um uh one and then into the late 50s and the slow the slow breakdown of uh apartheid into the state we are now i mean can you talk, t tell us a little bit about how that happened and who the key players were well well yes i mean i think i think the 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 period between uh the, the apartheid regime was at its height around uh around 1970 or so so it was it was it was as a as a an oppressive structure it was uh uh, it was still on the rise through this period. Um, however, of course, after that, first of all, there were a number of racially based cricket uh, cricket uh, organizations, associations of colored Malays, uh, Indian, South Africans, black South Africans, and so on, all had their own, uh, their own distinct entities. Uh, then they, they, they played, to, they, they all came together in something called Sackbok, uh, and they played regional tournaments, and that began that began in the nineteen the nineteen sixties, and then club cricket slowly started to integrate. Um, Andre Udendal, of course, my my co-author, was the the first white player to join Sackbok and to become part of this this non-racial entity in the nineteen seventies. He, he as a cricket blue from Cambridge, he come back. He played a bit of first class cricket uh, for Burland, and then and then played uh, in the in the sack box system um and so the, the key there were, i mean there were so many key black players throughout the whole period starting with crom Hendricks, Dorf freeman uh and uh and 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 numerous numerous others um or quite a few of whom are are, are detailed in the book um charles nichols um but players who no one no one has ever heard of and, and but the the probably the most significant of these was was a guy called frank rojo and Rojo was a uh, was a, a my, uh, worked on mines in in Johannesburg. Uh, he was a, a an African uh, five foot four small guy, uh, but an absolutely brilliant batsman. He he worked uh, he worked in the uh, in the personnel department of the mines, um, and mines cricket was really encouraged by by Harry Tabor, who was the, the recruitment uh, the guy that I mentioned earlier. So cricket on the mines was encouraged among, uh, but not among migrant workers, uh, among, among uh, you know, uh, the, the small group of, of permanent, permanent black, uh, black workers on the mines, police and so on. Uh, so, so Rojo was probably the, the most significant player, possibly the, the certainly the best, uh, oh, Hard to make comparisons because they never played against each other. But he was he was of the stature of of Rod he of of, uh, of of Headley uh, uh, in the in in uh, in the West Indies, um, and uh, and and he was probably the key player. Then of course you you come into nineteen fifties and you've got uh, you've got a, a huge group of South African players, who, some of whom were playing in the uh, in the Lancashire leagues, uh, uh, Gulam Abed uh, and and and. John Abrams and, and others. And of course, you've got Basil D'Oliveira and the Basil D'Oliveira kind of blows the lid off all of this. Uh, and people become aware of what, what cricket is really like in South Africa and how good cricket is. And, and Basil D'Oliveira, of course, is playing cricket in, in 1946. Uh, bizarrely, before even before the, the 40, 40, he's in playing cricket at the age of 16 in 40, 46, 7. 
he's playing for the Western Province so-called coloured sides. So he spans a huge amount of time as well, um, given the, the, the longevity that he has in terms of his career. So he's been playing cricket for 20 years at, at, a, at a pretty high level by the time the Dolavira affair actually happens. Richard, you've got some um, new revelations in your book about the exclusion of Basil Dolavira. I'll ask you to take um, you. I'll ask you to take us through them in a moment. But just want to say another thing you comment on in the book uh, extensively is the fact that long before Dolavira, the MCC decided to exclude um, Ranjit Singhji and Dulip Singhji from the England from England teams at uh, against South Africa. There was nothing, in a sense, there's nothing new about uh, Dolavira, is there? Oh, uh, you you you're right. I, it's as I've tried to suggest really in this book, is that you can't look at Dolavira in isolation. You have to look at Dolavira in terms of 75 years of history. And you've got to look at it, you know, Crom Hendricks and Dolavira grew up 200 yards away. Dolavira had never heard of Crom Hendricks, for example. So there's a 75 year span, 80 year span there of, of cricket, of, of, uh, of black cricket in South Africa. And indeed in the UK, there's an 80 year span as well because the first, the first South African tourists in 1894 actually play a game against Ranji, against Ranjit Sinji um, for, for, um, for Charles Wright's 11 uh, in about their fourth or fifth game in, in England. Ranji, of course, makes 54 and 150 not out in that game. Very similar to, to what he got in his first test match against Australia, of course. Um, but Ranji is not, that, that's the only time that South Africans see Ranji. When Hawke brings his team over in 1896, two years later, uh, Hawke does not select Ranji. And indeed, Hawke and Harris are determined that, that Ranji shouldn't play for England at all at this point. And it's only, it's only when W.G. Grace wades in and says, I want Ranji, I need the best team out. I don't care whether, what, what he is, um, that they, they, they have to concede. Uh, and in fact, uh, in fact, Ranji becomes part of the team, but Ranji never goes to South Africa. He never plays against South Africa again. Just that first game in 1894. Dulip Singhji, uh, Dulip Singhji in the 1930s, Ranji's Ranji's nephew, um, by by uh, rather surprisingly, also only plays one game against South Africa. He's selected for the the, the first Test in 18 sorry 1929. Uh, South Africa's first test against England. Uh, he's clearly a, a, a very significant player for England and will be for, for some time to come. Uh, plays a game, uh, doesn't make many runs, uh, makes, makes 12 and, and, and a couple, I think. Um, but nonetheless, he's absolutely a player for the future. However, uh, there's a little bit of there's some background noise. The South African management chapped with the right people at Lords, and uh, that's the last we see of Dulip in the series. But immediately after the series, Dulip plays in every test match. He goes on the next tour, he plays in every test match for England for some time. Uh, of course, health issues mean he retires far too young. But um, so, so Dulip, Dulip is, both Ranji and Dulip essentially are, are, are culled from the English selectorial system. So the, the question of Dolavira then is, is yet we have, we have exactly the same issue. And, uh, and, and the South Africans expect the English to treat it in exactly the same way that they've done. They know their history. They know this has happened. So they just expect England to quietly forget about Dolavira. But it becomes, it becomes extremely difficult. And, and the evidence I have to back up my story about Basil Dolavira, to be honest, I, I, 
until I saw this, I didn't know there was more to write. I had because I'd read I'd read Peter Oberhorn's book, of course, and 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 others. And I thought we'd pretty well got to the end of the story on on um, on Basil. But what I found were first of all, I found two two different sets of evidence. One was uh, one was the the sets of, of minutes from meetings held at Lords in the Lords archives, both for the selection meeting and the subsequent committee meeting, and indeed for committee meetings for earlier, uh, for the two years before that and afterwards. So the minutes are all there. Uh, I've documented them in the book, I've footnoted them so people know where to go and get them. So they're, they're, they're all there. Uh, but they've provided a, a very different, clearer, I think, uh, perspective on, on what might have taken place. They're not, a, they're, they're not a smoking gun as such, because smoking guns don't exist in formal minutes, as we all know. Yes. Uh, the shorter, the better. The less you say, the better in minutes. They're more like summary records than actual minutes of what happened. But they're significant, and you can read between the lines as to the, the progress of the way discussions went. Um, the second thing is that I also found the person who had spoken to Mike Brearley uh, about the uh, uh, about the fact that that Doug Insull had, had said uh, at some stage to him had admitted to him that in fact they had selected Dolivera, the selection committee of five, but that the officials, in other words, the uh, the the president was Arthur Gilligan, who'd been a, a fascist in the nineteen twenties, as I think we all know, uh, Gabby Allen, who was the treasurer and the power behind the throne. Um, and Billy Griffith, who was the secretary, as well as Alec Douglas Hume, who was who was the obviously just past prime minister and and president of the MCC, ex president of the MCC at the time as well. So the the the, the powers that be had determined on the fact that that Dolivera would not be selected, uh, and there'd been a long process to get to that. It started in 1966, uh, and South Africa had, in 1966 had said Dolivera will not be welcome here. There'd been a bit of confusion because there'd been a, a rugby tour with the All Black tour had been cancelled because they tried to bring a Maori player. South Africa had said, we're not taking a Maori player. Uh, and, and the New Zealand had said, okay, well, in that case, we're not going to come. Now, that would have been the obvious example for, for, uh, for Lords and the MCC to follow, to say, are you, you going know, to take the Dolivera or not? Dolivera is part of our team. Uh, he's averaging better than anybody else in English cricket at the time, apart from Ken Barrington. You know, he's one of our best players. We, we, we need him there. Um, and South Africa had forced South Africa's hand. They didn't do that. In fact, they did everything they could possibly do to try and, to try and find a way of making sure that Dolivier didn't come. In the, the, when they dropped him, after they played him in the first test against Australia. He, he made top score. Uh, took a couple of wickets as well. They dropped him on the morning of the match of the second test at Lords. And they, they, in the week before, they, Arthur Coy, the South African president of the South African Cricket Association, had been sent by John Forster to, to, to sort this out. And he and, uh, and uh, Jim Swanton, uh, acting as in who knows what capacity, as well as Billy Griffith, had all gone to see Dolivera individually like, like the sort of, uh, you know, like the, uh, the, the three little pigs situation. And, uh, and they'd all gone individually and they'd said to Dolivera, you must withdraw. The future of the tour depends on you withdrawing. And by the way, why don't you just change all of this now and, and go and play for South Africa instead? 
which was <laughs> ultimate in, in unbelievable, cruel and offensive treatment of what it, of a player who'd been immensely loyal to England. He'd played his heart out. He'd scored 158 to win the Ashes for England in the same day as, the, as this team was selected, or at least in the same test match as this team was selected. Um, and quite astonishing treatment. One, one wonders if, 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 you know, the fact that he was, did the fact that he, Dolivier was black allow this treatment? I mean, what was it that, that allowed these, these people to think they could, they could do this and get away with it? And of course, then it got complicated because Dolivier came back in the fifth test. Colin Cardry brought him back initially as a backup seam bowler, bizarrely, because he, he bowled well in the, in the summer, um, as a, a backup seam bowler for the Oval. Uh, he was, but he was only a backup, and and Tom Cartwright was ahead of him, uh, and also, uh, and and in any event, it was unlikely that they would they would use him. But but what happened was Cartwright Cartwright's perennial injury problem surfaced; he couldn't play. Um, and on the morning of the match, um, even more even more bizarrely, Roger Prido, uh, whose wife had been on the on on the England women's tour, by the way, to South Africa in 1960 61. Uh, Roger Prido withdrew with a virus, and Dolivier came in, and he came in essentially as a batsman, although he'd been selected as a, as bowler. He stormed the test, made 158, playing for his cricketing future, playing for his pride, playing for everything. You know, you can see how individuals, particularly individuals, are able to raise their game under moments of, of intense pressure. If he failed, it was all over. So he had to succeed. So the pressure was intense. He got 158, won the game, took a crucial wicket as well. Uh, and, and the side was selected that night to tour. To tour. And anyway, I, I won't go into the details of how all that happened. I'll try and set it out in the book as to what happened during the course of that six hour long selection meeting and what led up to it and what happened afterwards. Um, and, but the, the upshot was that Dolivier wasn't in the team. And not only was he, and, and uh, he, uh, Cartwright was selected, even though Cartwright's injuries, uh, Cartwright's injury was clear and, and likely not to improve in, in the period leading up to the team, uh, to the team actually leaving. Anyway, as everybody knew what would happen, happened, Cartwright had to pull out and eventually they had to put a replacement in. And uh, by that stage, it was clear that the game was up, that they, and so Dolivera came, was brought in as a replacement. South Africa made a few noises, didn't say anything officially, but made a few noises about the fact that Dolivera is still not acceptable. I mean, they never at any stage indicated at any time that, that Dolivera would ever be acceptable. It couldn't be. You couldn't bring this South African black guy to play for England. I mean, the politics of that are impossible. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't possibly allow that to happen. Um, but England decided at that point, so Dolivieri is finally selected. In fact, he's selected so much that in the archives, there's a copy of his contract without his signature on it. But there's a copy of his contract for Basil Dolivieri, the terms and so on, just needed to be signed by Dolivieri. Of course, he never got to sign. And that's, that's a, such a sadness. And um, so, so anyway, so, so South Africans say Dolivieri is... Not, not acceptable or whatever. So England then eventually, Lords eventually pull the plug on the tour. Uh, and they pull the plug on the tour because they figure this isn't over now. We'll, 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 we'll go back on this one, but we'll play in 1970. They're due in 1970. So we'll have another tour and we'll get this show back on the roads. By that stage, Dolivier will be too old, he'll have retired, whatever. 
it won't be an issue. We'll get the show back on the road. And that's essentially what happened. Strong stuff. Mm. Richard, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation um, uh, based on uh, your fascinating book. I'm not sure if I mentioned the title, uh, so I'll mention it now. Swallows and Hawk, which is a pun, um, uh, which will be explained when you, re when you read the book, and much else will be explained in the book. Um, recommend it very strongly. Um, but uh, for now, we have to say goodbye to you, Richard. It's been a wonderful conversation, and um, thank you for joining us. Richard, it's Roger Orton here. Thank you very much. Absolutely compelling, fascinating, brilliant. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you very much to both of you. Really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, and hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.